You're listening to Uncommentary, the home of conversations and clarity. I'm your host, Marty Duran. All right, welcome back to another episode of Uncommentary. My name is Marty Duran. I'm so glad that you are able to join me today. Uh, we're going to be talking about something that we've kind of broached a little bit uh, over the last several uh, episodes, maybe even over the last year. Uh, we, we regularly talk about uh, ways that uh, we can think about evangelicalism's impact on culture and things like that. One of the things we haven't talked about as much is how we can listen to non-Western voices, uh, Christians around the world, how, what we might learn from them. So those of us who are in the West and raised in the West, and especially those of us who are in the predominant cultures uh, in the West, uh, we've basically heard the same type of theological training and teaching our entire lives. Uh, it's, it's been unavoidable. It's, it's basically what makes evangelicalism evangelicalism. Um, and so the, the, the idea of learning outside of that bubble for most of us hasn't existed in our lifetimes. There wasn't any need to learn outside the bubble because the bubble is where all the truth was. And that's why we were in the dang thing. And so it's only been very recently that I've, uh, myself have been thinking of, of the need to listen to Christians who are what are, is commonly called the majority world or the global church. So um, believers, theologians, pastors, and teachers who are outside the West, whose uh, points of view are critically important so that those of us who are in the West don't begin to think or don't continue to think, maybe I should say, that our view is the either only or be the best view or interpretation or application of the scripture to life. So um, I'm joyful today to welcome Eric Costanzo. He uh, pastors in Illinois, is that right? Oklahoma. Oklahoma, bless your soul, man. I didn't even realize that. Yeah, same time zone. Oh, that's true. Well, you would be in Illinois too. Yeah, you're right. on the You're on the far side of it though. You're like is there is there a state beyond Oklahoma that's still central time? Uh well, it yeah, for a little while if you go west into Texas, yeah, and then oh, east into right. Arkansas. Yeah, you stay central for a little bit. Okay. All right. Cool. Uh, so you're a pastor out there, and you have uh, co you have co co written uh, a mm -hmm. book called Inalienable: How Marginalized Kingdom Voices Can Help Save the American Church. So um, I'm into this book a good piece, and I'm really excited about the conversation today. So Eric Costanzo, welcome to Uncommentary. Thank you, Marty. Glad to be here. I had to wait until you got that mug up before I gave you the opportunity to talk again. Uh, so talk a little bit about yourself, um, your history, your background, how you wound up in Oklahoma and where you pastor. Well, I wound up in Oklahoma because I was born here and, uh, I've lived here Man. pretty much my whole right, life. Right to the top of the prayer list you go. Yeah. Okay. Well, it's, uh, it's definitely, a. It's definitely home to me, and Tulsa is the city where I live. So, when, when we talk about Tulsa, we go between: are we Midwest? Uh, we're definitely not deep South, but we're not <laughs> we're not fully Midwest. We're pretty influenced by Texas, but we're really close to Kansas, Missouri, and Arkansas. So, I don't mm -hmm. know. Tulsa is its own kind of its own place, but it's a it's a great city. And the church I pastor is called South Tulsa Baptist Church, 
I've been here for a little over six years. And um, I, w- I previously served at a church in downtown Tulsa as an associate. And uh, oh, the only time I've not lived in Tulsa was just for school. So I lived in a, mm. another town in Oklahoma for college. And uh, then I lived down in Fort Worth for a few years doing a couple of seminary degrees and then yeah. found my way back home. Excellent. So um, you are co-author, co-co-author uh, of this book with two other guys. And it's significant. I think that the three of you are significant in your in your likenesses and in your differences. So uh, Daniel Yang is one of your co-authors, as is Matthew Sorens. Matthew's actually been on the podcast before. Uh, why don't you give everybody kind of a the high-level view of why it makes this book unique that you three guys are the authors? One reason it makes it unique is because writing a book with three people but trying to write in one unified voice is really hard. <laughs> so we've all become very good friends in the process. There were art, there was already an existing friendship there, but we've become very good friends in the process and sharpened each other, I think, in, in writing together. Um, they, they are the two who live in Illinois. So you had that in your mind for a oh, reason. Oh, yes. You're exactly they, right. They both live in Aurora and uh, work in the Chicagoland area. And, um, you know, we all three have in common that most of our Christian life has been connected to evangelicalism in one way or another. Where we're different is the, in what we do for a living. You know, I pastor a local church, which which allows me to be involved in all kinds of different areas of ministry and outreach and, and work. But my, my primary job is shepherding a local congregation. And Matt uh, Sorens works in the refugee resettlement world, though a lot of his work is done inside churches and on podcasts like yours, helping, mm-hmm. helping folks understand from a biblical perspective what immigration and refugee work looks like. And then Daniel's more of a missiologist and a church planter. But, you know, we've all kind of had experiences in different areas, but right now we're working in different fields. So I think it gives us a different lens. And and then we were all raised just a little bit differently in terms of our Christian upbringing, but we all had that. And so I think it's given us a, a, a well-rounded approach in addition to the many different voices of folks we used in our book who we know can speak for themselves. And so we tried to, to elevate their voices as much as possible. I'm going to read a uh, paragraph. I don't know whether you wrote this or not. Uh, I don't see a we or an I in it, so it must be a we. Uh, this is from page 42. It's at the bottom of the page. The challenge. So I'm going to, I'm going to read this kind of as the context for the conversation. I want to ask you to, to comment on it. Uh, The challenge for American Christians is to be captivated by a picture of the church that is ancient and global rather than one that is Western and American. If the American church is to be saved, we must not only understand, but also come to desire the influence coming from our historically marginalized communities and other Christians from around the world, which is an inalienable aspect of Christ's commission to his church by design. So, what in the world are y'all talking about? I think that's one of the rare couple of sentences that we all three wrote, honestly. I mean, most of the book, we each of us would take the lead on a chapter, and then we would kind of edit each other's work, and then we all tried to contribute to every chapter. Mm-hmm. But that was something that kind of came together as a cohesive thought, all collaborating. And I think it works. I, you found a central point of the book because uh, that theme really kind of captures where we all came together in in wanting to write this direction. And I think what 
kind of packed inside of those couple of sentences are some things we deal with early on in the book, and that is the American church's tendency to have a very myopic view. And one of the reasons why, as the American, the, the at least the white evangelical side of the American church is in decline, where there's actually a lot of exponential growth happening in the global church, but even in North America, in like the Hispanic church, for example, where we're not on the same page with our brothers and sisters in Christ because our view is so narrow. Mm. And we rarely find ourselves in contexts where we're engaging other Christians who have a different skin color or from a different generation or have a, from were born in a different country or grew up in a different Christian tradition. You know, I, I know that uh, in my education in the Baptist world, I really had to intentionally seek out certain slices of the history of the church that weren't mm-hmm. being weren't being required for me to learn. Right. I always joke it's like we we finished um, our study of the New Testament. We talked for about uh, a one class session or two about the patristics, and then we jumped to the Reformation. It was like we skipped a thousand years, um, <laughs> maybe more than a thousand years, like like the Holy Spirit wasn't uh, wasn't active and at work during that right. time. Right. And so I, but I'm a church history guy. So, you know, I most of my electives were in Greek, Hebrew, or church history. So I was able to find that, but it was like in a, a small section of my seminary offerings. It wasn't mm. required. But, you know, Matt grew up with much more of a, a, a richness in his church history background. And then Daniel, uh, Daniel's story is so amazing because when his family came to the United States, so he was conceived in a refugee camp, but he was that actually born in the That sentence is so funny States. in the book. <laughs> yeah. Daniel has an amazing story. But basically, you know, his family came from Laos as Hmong refugees, and mm-hmm. they didn't have any connection to Christianity. But because a church was involved in the resettlement agency and they met these wonderful Christian families, Daniel's dad surrenders his life to Christ and Daniel ends up getting raised Christian. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they have a much different, uh, he had a much different upbringing than I did in, and, and learned to, to see different ways that uh, East Asian people can still re- retain some essential parts of their culture and family but submit all of that to the leadership of Christ. And so anyway, that in that sentence is just sort of that, uh, or those sentences, the acknowledgement that all of us probably have a narrow myopic view in one way or another. And if we're forsaking the global work of Christ in the church and the global, uh, his, I mean that historically, but also currently, and then the global view of the future, which is is a church that is much less Western, because mm-hmm. in many ways, the church in Europe and North America is in decline, at least the Western church. Mm-hmm. But in places like Africa, South America, and East Asia, and in many countries where Christians are heavily persecuted, there's significant growth happening. And so that's part of that is like, you know, we have to have a better vision of the who the church actually is. And in most cases, at least when I talk to primarily American Christian audiences, those kinds of things come as a surprise to them. Yeah. Um, what does the American church need to be saved from? First and foremost, ourselves, um, you know, which I think is at the root of all of our sinfulness is, 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 a, is selfishness. 
But I think that uh, w- we have an entire chapter on what we call American Christian idols. And in that chapter, we identify that, you know, America has some substantial idol- idols that we we prioritize. You, you can tell by how much money, you know, billions of dollars go into mm-hmm. the entertainment industry, sports, you know, personal, personal uh, wellness, things like that. But inside the church are the idols we deal with. You know, things like uh, our, our strong focus on individualism, which often tends to neglect what it means to be a community and, and for the body of Christ to be uh, a community and to look at things communally as the Bible often presents it. So inside of the church, we have idols that are unique to our church settings. And we, mm-hmm. we only deal with a few of them. I'm sure we could identify more, but we're not talking about idols that are made of stone or metal or wood. The, the, that could be a different discussion maybe, but we're talking about things like consumerism. And mm-hmm. one, one that's really unique we deal with is individualism, which some people might see not as a negative thing, but it, it can be if our very strong sense of individualism as Americans causes us to neglect the communal aspect of being the body of Christ. And mm-hmm. and as the Bible so often speaks to the people of God in the plural, we talk about our weird obsession with celebrities, Christian celebrities, yeah. <laughs> and, and celebritism as an idol. And eth- we talk about ethnocentrism. We dig into Christian nationalism just a little bit, mm-hmm. but enough that we call it an idol. Um so I think those are some of the things we need to be saved from. I mean, how much of the Bible is is God calling his people to reject their idols and to repent and to come back to him? So saved from ourselves, saved from our idols. And then I think saved from a lot of the toxic influences that we've allowed to speak into the church or for the church mm. who really don't represent Christ or the body in any way. But it's mm-hmm. been advantageous, maybe because some people, for some people, it's been advantageous because it has given them more of an influence, or it's built wealth, or or given them maybe what they see as a seat at the table um, mm-hmm. in power structures. But those kinds of relationships have historically not worked out well for the church or for God's people in Scripture. So those yeah. are some examples. So listening to commentary, uh, this is Marty Duran. I'm talking to Eric Costanzo, and we're talking about uh, how the American church can benefit from listening to the global church, and we're going to get back to our conversation in just a second. Uh, but right for this second, I want to talk to you about how you can support this podcast. I think I let everybody know in one of the last couple of episodes that uh, Uncommentary is now part of my, what would they say, stream of income. Uh, so I'm full-time in freelance now. Part of my gig is the podcast. So if you've been on the margin, uh, no pun intended, and uh, haven't been, you've been consuming, but you haven't been supporting, here is a great opportunity for you to rectify that oversight. So you can go to patreon.com slash uncommentary. There's actually one slot left to be a $2 a month supporter. So if you're really in a tough spot, but you'd still like to help out, uh, there's one spot left for that. After that, it's like five, 10, 20, 25 and a hundred dollars a month. And, uh, there's some swag that goes along with that because the uncommentary store is now set up on bonfire. So you can find the link in the uh, show notes, but I think it's bonfire.com slash store slash uncommentary. 
I think it's where you can find it. You can get a hat, you can get shirts, you can get, I don't know what all coffee mugs and there's some other cool stuff there too. So uh, if you'd like to support doing that, you can, uh, if you just came into a giant inheritance and you'd like to give a one-time gift to support the, the podcast, you can go to paypal.me slash uncommentary pod and give until your heart or bank account or investment account is content. And I promise you, I will be content as you do. So we're going to jump right back into this conversation with Eric Stanzo. Eric, um, how can, so one of the things that I had no idea about until a, a year or a year and a half ago was how the, uh, 1974, 1975 Lausanne, uh, conference came together <clears throat> that, uh, I guess Billy Graham was probably the driving force on the American side. John Stott was kind of the driving force on the European side. And then, uh, at some point Renee Padilla from, uh, Central America, uh, I forget exactly which countries, maybe it's South America, but I forget, um, was like, Hey, we, there needs to be emphasis here. I think they even got to Switzerland and had presented some of the materials and there was some pushback, uh, from the global church that was in attendance there about how poorly some of those things were represented, representative of them. A lot of things ended up getting rewritten. Uh, and republished as a result of that. And Lausanne since then, I think, has been kind of the face of what would be considered the global evangelical church as opposed to just the North American or European expressions of that. Um, that being said, how can the average person in the West, especially the average American who just is becoming aware um of this need or who's like still like, what are y'all even talking about? What are some ways that Americans can avail ourselves of these other voices that you guys are talking about? You do a great job in your book of quoting uh, theologians and pastors and writers from other countries, from the majority world, uh, men and women. And, um, but as, even as I'm going through, I'm like, okay, I recognize that name. I don't recognize that name. I recognize that name. I don't recognize that name. Um, how, how can we find these people so that we can begin to avail ourselves of the wisdom and we can take on the, the uh, attitude of a learner rather than a teacher? Well, I hope that our, our book is a starting place, and I don't mean that to be self-serving just for more people to buy the book. That's all. No, that's why you're on here, that's dude. Goal. <laughs> um, but our book we jokingly brag that the best part of our book is the bibliography because it, it really will um, point you to a, a lot of voices that most American Christians have probably not heard of. I mean, I, it's not just folks we've interviewed. You mentioned C. Renee Padilla, you know, his daughter, Ruth Padilla divorced is a, mm-hmm. is a prominent person in our book. Uh, we actually have uh, with another podcast in the, the Holy post they're doing a four-part series and interviewing folks from our book instead of us. Oh, good. So like Ruth yeah, was yeah. the first one. And so they're taking that whole idea of let's talk to the global Christian voices here. And, uh, and then we just kind of come at the end and, and dialogue about, mm-hmm. about it. But Ruth is amazing. And I, I mean, we, we probably could have quoted her 25 times in the book. I think we, we got it down to four or five because we thought we're going to have to just put her name on the book as an author. If we're not careful. <laughs> and we didn't have permission from her to do that. So um, yeah. she was a wonderful person to interview and to use. But, you know, people, there's folks like that. But then there's also like Arabic Christian scholars who 
have written things that are his that are very influential in global Christian churches and academic settings, but I never they were never on my reading list in seminary. Mm-hmm. And I mean, who would I rather hear some some cultural commentary about the Good Samaritan parable from uh, a Westerner like me who's read a lot of books and preached and taught, or right. somebody who's lived in a context where they understand those Middle East Middle Eastern relationships and and how they go back for generations. So. We think the book's a good place to start, but honestly, anyone, wherever you live, you're not far away from an immigrant church, from an immigrant community. And within those immigrant communities in the United States, whether they're refugees or whether they've they've immigrated through some other way, you're going to find Christian people because we've had a tendency in the last 40 plus years to provide pathways for immigrants and refugees who are Christians above anyone else. So mm-hmm. yes, we do have Muslim mm-hmm. refugees and and we have folks from all, all different religions and backgrounds, but we've got a lot of Christians in the United States, which means that through your local association of churches, uh, pastors, councils, you know, ministerial alliances, wherever they might be, or even if you just start opening your eyes as you drive, you you might find that right there in your community, there is a Hispanic church. There is uh, in our city in Tulsa. We have a we have over a dozen Burmese churches. We have ended wow. up becoming a large center of the Zomi people from Burma, from Myanmar, and um, and so that that may just be you know getting to know the the immigrant family whose children play sports with your children, or mm-hmm. the person who owns the the restaurant and you go in and you look around and you go, wow, there, there's actually some Christian symbols in here. Maybe these folks are believers, but some, <laughs> some ways that you can have to me, the, the most growth in this area will come through building some personal relationships. And I think you would agree, Marty, that anybody who will go down that path will be enriched by mm-hmm. broadening their worldview a little bit by getting to know somebody who grew up differently. And so I think that you any have, community you can find folks. Yeah, you, you actually have a chapter in here called God's Inclination Toward the Poor, Oppressed, and Vulnerable. And I think one of the one of the tricky things for a lot of American Christians, you, you mentioned the uh, Hmong people and, and uh, people from Laos. Uh, when I was a kid, maybe high school, um, there was a family from Laos that were attending our church, and I'm sure they were refugees. We didn't know them by that term. They just uh, showed up one Sunday and then kept showing up. And I don't think any of them spoke English, but they were kind of received with open arms. Um, of course, Southern Baptist life has weren't conservative Southern Baptist and evangelicals uh, white weren't as um, iffy on the immigration issue in the late seventies, early eighties, as they have come to be of late. But even in, recent times uh you know there are pockets of churches even in deeply red states that always vote against uh like a uh an public or a pro or a good immigration stance i'm I'm trying to avoid the word open because somebody accused me of being open borders um but a very helpful immigration stance with with good uh balance there um, churches are still receiving, would still receive people into their, their congregation. They would try to minister to them. So there's like this weird, um, the idea of reaching into someone's life or welcoming them in and trying to meet their needs and get them closed and get them to the doctor, 
a church would do while most of its members would go vote against the very uh, policies that would allow the government to help them more or something like that. So how can we um, who struggle with knowing uh, what's the best way to approach these particular issues? How can we cultivate God's heart toward the poor, the vulnerable and the oppressed, uh, whether they're immigrants or not? Well, I think we have to ask ourselves at all times, who, who are the loudest voices informing the, our opinions on such things or how we're going to vote? And I don't, I don't know what it looks like in your context, but in mine, I know a lot of our folks are being discipled, quote unquote, much more at times by the media and social media that they watch and listen to and, and scroll than they are by their time in the scripture. And I know I'm not saying that even as much as as a criticism as folks talk about that. They know that's the case and they struggle because that some of those things just they, they constantly draw you in and they're they're geared towards stirring up anger or stoking fears. And it's a lot easier to give in to that than to really sit and wrestle with the scripture and live by faith. And mm-hmm. and when I say live by faith, I mean, you know, the, the kind of faith that uh, that sees God's heart for justice and righteousness. I don't mean a blind faith that is is is, you know, doing like a, a leap before you look kind of thing or, mm-hmm. or the way that wishful thinking. Yeah, the way that people have said faith over fear during the pandemic is not what I mean. Mm, what I yeah. mean is uh, looking through the eyes of faith that that see through Christ's lens that he even we, we talk about in that chapter you referenced how he began his ministry in Nazareth by saying, quoting Isaiah, you know, I'm mm-hmm. here to be good news to the poor. I've come to set the captives free. Um, I've come to to provide a, a place where debts are forgiven and and so that's that's God's heart that Christ manifested so perfectly for us in flesh and blood and, and and lived among people and experienced that kind of poverty. And I think that where we move into the the topic of advocacy later on in the book, that that really is a key um, key way that I've engaged this as a pastor is to mm. say, um, well, you know, I'm not going to stand in the pulpit and endorse a political candidate. And I'm not going to read from a House bill or a Senate bill, but I will tell you at times with, for our immigrant and refugee neighbors, and we have a lot mm-hmm. who live right around our church here, the only way that we can advocate for them in this area is through policy. Because mm-hmm. until there's either a policy change or their case gets heard, they absolutely cannot thrive. They cannot take mm-hmm. one step forward until they're legally allowed to do so because we all want them to do it the right way. That's the language people use. Right. But right. a lot of people don't understand how hard and even at times impossible that is. And so that's where av- Christian advocacy can deal with policy without being partisan mm-hmm. and can can advocate for for in a pro-life way for the born as well as the pre-born. And, right. uh, and sometimes we need to use our position as citizens, as residents, as people with who have more of a voice in this culture to open the door for others. And I think we try to be really intentional about talking about advocacy, not as speaking for someone, though I know that's a typical Bible verse folks like to quote. Mm-hmm. But we always need to remember people can speak for themselves. And the way the Bible describes the word advocate, and interestingly, Jesus and the Holy Spirit are the two who mm-hmm. get that title. 
it's it's using a word that means to stand alongside someone. Ah, but at times, good. you may need to get in front of them to protect mm-hmm. them, or you need to be behind them as support. But you know, it's it's really a beautiful word as we unpack it in the book. That um, if you look into a lot of different uses, it's it's kind of a word study, but I think it's a good word study. It's more than just the court-appointed lawyer, which is what typically mm-hmm. a commentary will say. It's also the person who sits with someone who is sick. It's the person who's just a good, trustworthy friend. Who that you know, that's their advocate, my friend. You know, there's a lot of ways that we can do advocacy and do it in a Christ-like way. So I think that helps me as a pastor help folks. Okay, set aside that other stuff. Let's talk about what Christian advocacy looks like. So you you hit something there, and it's also uh, part of a, a chapter or part of a chapter in the book, uh, like moving beyond partisanship. Um, I want you to expound on that just a little bit, because I do think that that's one of the struggles that we have. I mean, today's voting day in Tennessee. I guess it's the primary or something. Um, and then we'll have the general in November or whenever. And there is so much in the United States and even in the church in the United States that hangs on uh, not just being a good citizen, not just exercising a right to vote or having a say in the process, but it's almost the, the, the selection of team uh, is so strong um, that it really does affect how we implement the scriptures in a lot of ways. So, Talk, uh, speak to the issue of how to how to live beyond partisanship as a believer in in the United States. Aren't you looking forward to that general election here in a couple of years too? Oh I mean, my goodness, we've got we've got the <laughs> midterms coming up. Those will be fun enough. But uh, I mean that that has been as hard as the pandemic for pastors mm-hmm. and yeah. um, to navigate that in our churches. And you know we we've had a conversation here with our staff recently that it's kind of an ongoing conversation about who would who would our church struggle to welcome because we we're, we're a very welcoming church but every community probably has its limits and and, and interestingly I think we landed on um, it our, our church would struggle to welcome very outspoken Democrats more than they would any other group and that's mm. how part that's how polarizing partisanship is because I know we have folks in our church on both sides of the aisle. Right. But we're in a very red state and a uh, very red zip code. And, you know, uh, <laughs> uh, it's Oklahoma. So, I mean, we got to yeah, be realistic. Yeah. And we're in a Baptist church. So, <laughs> yeah. it's a trifecta. <laughs> it's, it's, yeah, I could even add more layers. But um, I think that w- what we try to say in the book is discipleship instead of partisanship. What does that mean to look? To, to be a, a follower of Christ and be discipled by him and scripture and not by a party. And I think that what, what, what we try to model is then, so if we're going to deal with things that have social or political implications, we're not doing it in a partisan way. We don't make little digs in the book about, and so, but we, we all know one party mm-hmm. represents this more than the other on either side. Right. right. Yeah. And I think that's a temptation. I, I, I've, you know, I love my the folks in my church too much to let them constantly get sucked into this toxic partisan blue team versus red team stuff without calling it out. 
And I mm-hmm. think I've been here long enough that they now realize that I don't call it out because I have an agenda for one team or the other. I call it out because I have exactly the opposite. I don't want them to be so polarized. And, and I think most folks are a part of what is commonly called now the exhausted majority, which is the middle. They're not mm-hmm. really right wing or left wing, but those folks are out there and they're very loud. And it's hard to not get get pulled really hard that direction. And so I think that I just try to we're just trying to help folks set the, aside the teams, as you call them, and say, uh, what does it look like to be one of the disciples? And then there are probably some things on either team that at times we need to consider. But nobody's a centrist. There is not an actual middle where anybody can be just straddling the fence. And I don't think scripture has us there either. But the two-party system we have and the partisan lines that have been drawn, I don't personally view either one of them as an idyllic view of being a disciple. So yeah, uh, that's that's what we're trying to, that's I think we have to pull people back to discipleship. My guest today has been Eric Costanzo. He's the co-co-author of Inalienable, How Marginalized Kingdom Voices Can Help Save the American Church. And it's available now, so you can grab it wherever uh, you shop for books. And uh, before we go, I want to remind you to do uh, three things, if you would. Uh, if you've never rated uh, Uncommentary in your podcatcher, please do that. It'll take like 10 seconds. Just push the uh, five stars, if you would. Uh, I hope it, I hope you feel like it's worth that. But rate it regardless. Uh, and also review. If you've never left a review, there's a lot of great ones. And I appreciate every single person who's taken the time to write a review of two or three sentences. If you haven't done that, uh, I would encourage you and be grateful if you would. And then the third thing is to recommend. Uh, and specifically, not uh, only a social media retweet or something like that, though I appreciate every single one of those. Uh, but also Find someone, think of someone specific that you can recommend an episode or the podcast to and send them a link or text them a link or something like that and encourage them to listen to this episode or another one. And uh, that'd be super encouraging to me as well. So Eric Stanzo, man, thanks so much for hanging out today. It's been fun. And uh, I've, I've only, we've only known each other briefly on Twitter. So I'm glad we got to have a real conversation. Thanks for having me. As always, thank you for listening to Uncommentary. If you'd like to keep up with me on Twitter, it's at Marty Duran. If you'd like to follow the podcast account, it's at Uncommentary Pod. Please rate and review. And whichever podcatcher you listen to, uh, whether it's uh, Apple Podcasts or Google Play or Podbean uh, or Overcast or CastBox, whichever one you use, uh, if you can rate and review, then that would be awesome. It just helps with search results and gives some credibility uh, to the podcast itself. Uh, And as you have an opportunity, if you would promote it, whether you uh, put the link from uncommentarypodcast.com on your Facebook page or if you tweet the link or retweet the the initial broadcast that it's live, uh, anything like that to help spread the word is always appreciated. And as always, uh, Solideo Gloria, this is Marty Duran for Uncommentary Podcast.